Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you today. And man, is it good to have David Zock with us. I uh, respect that man so much. He, the first time I ever went into a brothel to look for a victim of human trafficking, he was the guy who was leading me. And I just it's been a privilege to be friends with him and to see the way that he lives out God's calling on his life with wisdom and with love. And uh, I just respect him so much. And it's such a privilege to continue this year our partnership with the Exodus Road and their amazing work through our Christmas offering. So glad that you get to see that. Glad that I get to be with you. You may not notice this if you are at home right now, but uh, I am preaching via video, which is the first time we've done that. The reason that I'm doing that is because Uh, This last week, my wife and I, we have been recovering from COVID. Uh, That's not a joke. We we tested positive last week, and so we've been quarantining and recovering and doing all that stuff. We're doing really well. Um, Kids are doing well. The thing that has been like the upside of this is like so many people have just rallied around us. Our small group has been amazing and shown up with meals on our doorstep and just all sorts of great stuff. But We uh, are told by the doctors that uh, on Monday we'll be free and clear and no longer contagious and excited to see people again, but just didn't want to take any risks today. So we thought we'd try this via video because I was really excited about the sermon. We are starting to wrap up our series on the letter of James. We only have two more weeks in this series, and I'll I'll be honest, I am going to miss James. And I wasn't sure that was going to be true at the beginning of this. I I was not totally sure about this guy, but I, I have really grown to love this man, James. He is wise. He's profound. He is practical. Uh, he's a little bit salty. I mean, he, like, like he'll tell you what he thinks. Uh, he's not going to hold back. I love that about him. And I just, I don't know if this is true, but I like to speculate that when you grow up with Jesus as a brother, you kind of have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. And you see that with James here. You see that in the letter he writes. Now, one of my favorite parts of this letter uh, is the way that it ends. Now, I'm going to, this is a little bit of a spoiler here, but I don't know if you've read ahead the last verse in the letter of James is a sentence, and it says this, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Period. That's it. Like, like that is where he stops. He's been writing this letter, and he just stops. He's, there's no like, listen, I know I've said a lot of stuff here. I know I've said some things that are probably hard to hear. I'm praying for you. Say hello to your family. Like, there's no pleasantries to this letter. It's like he's just furiously writing, and he's like, that's good. And he walks away, and that's the end of the letter. Um, I love that about James. I think this is what we're seeing Uh, We said at the beginning that James was one of the first guides for the people of God. Uh, Like as the church was forming, he's one of the first people that stepped in and gave them some spiritual guidance. I think he's really embraced that. He is trying to keep us from wandering. That's what he's trying to do. Uh, And it's as if he's saying to us, listen, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm not here to exchange pleasantries with you. I'm just here to tell you how your faith in Jesus should change everything for you. And I love that. I love the edge with which James writes. It makes me trust him a little bit. He, he has no motivation outside of just trying to help us live out this faith. And here, uh, we're in the last couple of paragraphs of his letter, and he's going to 
pack them full of wisdom and help and guidance for us as we seek to follow Jesus. So we're going to start in chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 11 today, and he's going to hit us with three behaviors. Uh, And the premise for all three of these behaviors is if Jesus is real, these are things that will start to change about us. So turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 11. James writes, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, or the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James says, listen, if you find Jesus, if you embrace this gospel that he's been talking about, like if you realize there's this kingdom that he is establishing on earth, then you will find that this becomes true of who you are, that you start to hold your opinion about others loosely. And you do that because you begin to be aware that you're not qualified to be the judge of others. Now, we all kind of know this on some level. Like, we know judging other people is bad. The Bible talks quite a bit about that. What's fascinating, though, is the way that James gives us the reason for it. He doesn't say it's bad because it's mean. He doesn't say it's bad because it's unloving, although it is both of those things. But he says that when we judge someone else, what we're actually doing is we're placing ourselves in the seat that belongs to Jesus. That's how he describes it. He says there's only one righteous judge, and no matter how obvious it is to you that that other person is an idiot, no matter how obvious it is to you that they're really wrong or that they've really fallen short, when we allow our hearts to evaluate them, we have taken the seat of Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. And that's a pretty big deal to James. It should be a pretty big deal to us. Like James says, he is the only one who is worthy to occupy that judgment seat. And by the way, do you know what Jesus gives from the seat of judgment? Jesus dispenses grace, right? At least that's what we believe. That's what we say. We claim as believers that we came to the righteous judge worthy of judgment and instead We got grace and forgiveness because of him. That's what James, I think, is trying to really help us see is that, listen, when we occupy that judgment seat, no matter how well-intentioned we are, everyone loses, and there begins to be less grace in the world because the righteous judge, the dispenser of grace, is no longer sitting on that seat in our life. You know, even though we want certain people to experience judgment, righteous judgment, Jesus wants them to experience the same thing we got from him, which is saving grace. So James says, listen, that's how the gospel should change you. The way you see others should shift from wanting to judge them, from wanting to render a judgment about their actions, to wanting them to experience the grace of the only righteous judge, which is not us, but is Jesus. He says, because of that, we become slow to judge others. We hold those opinions loosely. Now, we'll come back to that in just a second, but he's going to hit us with another behavior that's really important that will shift for us. Look at verse 13. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade, make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So again, there's a shift that occurs if we really believe Jesus is who he says he is. If we really believe the gospel, if we really believe the kingdom is being established on earth, then we will find that we start to hold our plans loosely. And the reason we hold them loosely is because we become aware of God's kingdom work, that God's kingdom is at work here on earth. James isn't saying don't ever make a plan. That's not what he's saying. He's contrasting something. He's contrasting the sort of plans that are very focused on our desires, the sort of plans that are very focused on what we want, and the sort of plans that are focused on the will of God. That's what he's describing. And it's this mindset that I think he's challenging that seeks to just add God to our life. Like I'm just living my life and hey, God comes along. Oh, that'd be a good addition to what I've already got planned. And it treats Jesus almost as if it's a, he's a sub, supplement to life. And James says, listen, at its core, I've been telling you this the whole letter, that is arrogance. And I know that sounds a little bit harsh because we do this all the time. We're like, well, let's just add Jesus to whatever we're doing. But this has been his point the entire book. Either there is this infinite, all-loving, all-powerful God who is at work on earth, who is establishing and cultivating this kingdom of mercy and justice all around us all the time. Either that exists or it doesn't. There's not that God. But if there is... I think James' premise is that the most arrogant thing we could ever do is just go on about our lives and just try to add a little bit of Jesus to it, add him to our plans, keep him maybe at arm's length. Because James really believes this, that if Jesus is real and he is who he says he is, then nothing else matters. Nothing else matters outside of that. And if Jesus is not who he said he is, then, you know, nothing at all really matters. James believes it. And James is saying, when you think about your future, that belief that he exists and that he is doing something on earth, that should be a part of the planning process for you. It should assume that God is real. And this idea that participating in his kingdom is the most consequential thing we could do with our time. That's how you make plans. I want to come back to this idea in a minute, but... um, He hits us with another change that's going to start in uh, chapter 5, and it has to do with how we approach our wealth. Here's what he writes, James 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, strong words, right? 
It's possible that this is just hyperbole that he's using here. I don't know. James, not always the most subtle person, but I think the point that he's trying to make is clear, that if you've really found Jesus, if you really believe in this gospel of the generous, loving God who is establishing his kingdom on earth, then we will find that we start to hold our wealth loosely because we realize it's not actually for us. He's saying a lot of explosive things and using some really colorful language. Uh, But I I think he's, again, contrasting two approaches to life. One is this mindset of accumulation, this mindset of affluence, this mindset that assumes that we have money and it's for us, that, that we should accumulate what we can while we can. And that's contrasted with this mindset that our wealth exists to help the agenda of the Lord of hosts. Uh, supporting laborers and harvesters is specifically what uh, James alludes to here. Now, I, I know that may sound, again, like he's against wealth, but just like he's not against planning, he's not inherently against wealth, but you will notice, he, it, while he's not preaching against making money, he is preaching against using your money primarily for yourself. He says that is the mindset that is problematic here. And he's talking specifically to business owners in the agricultural society, people who employ others. And what they were doing is they were maximizing their profits at the expense of the people that they had hired to work. And he's kind of pointing this out to them. Listen, your profits are not eternal. It's actually the workers who you have employed that are eternal. That's what God actually cares about. So factor that in. Now, I I think there's something in that that honestly, like if you are a supervisor of someone, if you're the sort of person who hires, fires, sets salaries, manages other people, I think this is a verse that we should pay attention to. This is practical theology here because I think sometimes when we're in that supervisory role, we get caught up in the mindset of how do I just make this budget work? But actually, we're not dealing with just budgets. We're dealing with the thing that God cares the most about on earth, and that is human beings. And so he's saying, hey, that needs to be the way that you think about employment of others. But even if we're not involved in that sort of behavior that James is describing here, I still think that that doesn't mean we're off the hook. He's really talking to all wealthy people, really. And so the relevant question for us is, are you rich? That's the relevant question. Like the principle here is that our wealth was given to us for the sake of others and for God's kingdom. It wasn't given to us to hoard and to indulge. And so the relevant question is, are you rich? And I suspect that uh, like if you're anything like me, you might tune out when you hear a question, are you rich? Because you don't think of yourself as rich. I don't typically think of myself as rich. But let's give ourselves a little bit of perspective here. Um, Do you realize that if you have $4,210 in financial assets, just $4,210, could be a house, car, money in the bank, whatever, if it adds up to $4,210, then you have more money than half of the people on the planet. Let's take that maybe just one step further. If your total net worth, if it exceeds $93,000, then you have more money than 90% of the people on the planet. You are in the top 10% if your assets add up to be greater than $93,000. What James is doing is he is speaking 
to people who find themselves in that position, where they're in the top half, in the top 10% even, he's speaking to most of us. And I think he's asking us this question, what do you think your wealth is for? Why do you think God has allowed you to have it? If you have encountered this generous God who heaps grace upon grace to people like us, he's asking us to consider, is that reflected in how you approach your wealth as an affluent person? So, it's a lot to throw at us, isn't it? Um, I mean, it's all this category of, hey, if, if Jesus is really real, which James fervently believes, Jesus is real, and he's saying, because of that, all this stuff changes for me, and all this stuff should change for you. But if this gospel of grace and mercy, if it's real, it will forever change how you approach your judgments, your plans, and your wealth. And James is saying it should. You know, if I was to summarize kind of this whole section of scripture, I think this is really what he's saying about these three things, that kingdom people don't make enemies out of other humans. Kingdom people don't make plans for ourselves. Kingdom people don't hoard our wealth. Instead, we fight for grace for others. We strategize with God for his will, and we use our wealth for other people not just for ourselves. That, that I think, is what he's saying. He's he's meaning, listen, uh, we don't let ourselves just judge and hate on others. That's not what kingdom people do because we know the one who's actually worthy to judge and he's the one that gives grace. So we reflect that. Uh, In our focus, when we think about plans, when we think about the future, it is tied to his success. That is the success we're looking for. Not our own success, but the success of the kingdom. And if we have money, we understand that that is an asset for kingdom purposes. He says that's how we think about things as Christ followers who have been saved by the grace and the generosity of our God. If we dare to believe it's all true, those things start to change. Let me, uh, let me close with maybe just a thought and a phrase for us. I think this could maybe help us understand how to make this sort of shift that, he, that he's saying. He's not just saying, oh, try harder to be less judgmental and include God in your plans and give away all your money. No, I, I think that there's a fundamental shift in his mindset that we also need to make. And I think this phrase might help us see how to make that shift. I heard this phrase recently and I really liked it. The phrase is Disney Princess Theology. Disney princess theology. Um, Have you ever watched a Disney princess movie? I have three boys, so I have not watched many Disney princess movies, mercifully. But uh, I have seen enough to know that this is true. What is universally true of Disney princess movies is that you are going to root for and you are going to identify with the princess in those movies, right? Like, nobody has ever watched a Disney princess movie and been like, Man, that stepmother, that's, she's, she seems really great. She's a real go-getter. I like that stepmother. No, you hate the stepmother because the stepmother is the villain. The story is not about her. The story is about the princess. That's who we identify with because she is the hero who is going to have to overcome the odds and fight for the happily ever after that she so deserves, right? So you identify with that. Now, Disney princess theology is this concept that refers to the tendency that we have to engage in the scriptures in the same way that we would engage in a Disney princess movie. 
What that means is we read stories in the Bible and we identify with the characters in the story that God helps to overcome the odds and find some sort of happily ever after. So like we read the story of Exodus and we identify with the imprisoned, enslaved Israelites being rescued by the mighty hand of God. Or we read the story of Esther and we identify with Queen Esther who was born for such a time as this. We read about the exiles in Babylon trying to hang on to their identity as God's people in a wicked nation. Or we identify with the disciples standing up to the Pharisees to follow Jesus or the early church trying to find its way in the world uh, while Rome's oppression happened all around them. And I think on some level, it's, it is good and it is appropriate to identify with all of those underdog characters. Like we are a part of that story. God has invited us into that story and there's nothing wrong with identifying with the oppressed underdog. But also, we should have moments of humility where we have the humility to recognize that on the surface, We as American Christians, many of us in the top 10% of wealth in the world, we may have something in common with Egypt and with Persia and with Babylon and with the Pharisees and with Rome. It's not healthy to just read ourselves into the heroic characters in the scriptures without considering that we might have something in common with the villainous ones. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, listen, America has problems, right? But on the wickedness scale, like those, all of those biblical empires were so far, so much more wicked than our country has ever thought to be. In a lot of ways, our nation is the most free and probably the most ethical earthly superpower that has ever existed, right? But still, we are an earthly superpower right? And so when we read these stories about where God's people struggle with an earthly superpower, we should see ourselves a little bit on both sides of those stories. Because if we just read the story and identify with the princess character in the story, you know what it's really easy to wind up doing? It's really easy to wind up judging others harshly. Because we're not the villain, they must be. It's really easy to start planning our happily ever after, because aren't we entitled to it? It's really easy to start relating to our wealth in self-indulgent ways because we deserve it. After all, look at the odds that we have had to fight to overcome. I think this Disney princess theology, the way we read ourselves into scripture sometimes, uh, it encourages our life to become about our judgments, our plans, and our wealth. But if we read the Bible differently, and if we consider that we may actually have more in common with like, let's say Babylon than Israel, uh, and even so, Jesus made a way for us to be included. Even so, Jesus included us in his kingdom. Even so, his grace and forgiveness applies to us, that that is the radical and the generous nature of our God, that he would even make a way for ridiculously affluent, villainous Gentiles like you and I to be included in his plan. That's the nature of his generosity. And when we encounter that generosity as villains in the story, then it's much harder to sit in judgment over someone else. It's much harder to just make our plans independent of God. It's much harder to hoard our wealth 
when we consider his generosity. You know what makes James kind of fun to read? Uh, James, I, this is true, he never treats us like we're the princess, does he? Like he never treats, like he, he talks to us throughout the whole letter, like we're the stepmother, like we have all these issues that we've got to work on, and it's a little bit humbling. It reveals to me those ways that I've assumed that maybe I'm the hero of the story. We have to reject this way of thinking to get our head around what James is teaching us. We have to realize that the story that we are caught up in is not primarily about us. We have to realize that the story that we are caught up in, it is not primarily about us. We are not the princess of the story. We are not the hero. The truth of the Bible story and of the kingdom of God is that the story is about Jesus. It is his story beginning to end, and we are caught up in it because he loves us. Despite our flaws, despite our villainous hearts, he loves us. He is the hero of the story, and this is a story about his kingdom. We are not the hero. Maybe an alternative uh, metaphor, instead of Disney princess theology, actually thought about this, I made this up this week. What if we embraced sidekick theology? You know, like a sidekick in a movie, the hero's friend who helps them accomplish things. Because if anything, I think the best comparison with us as the church and Jesus is that we're like the lovable sidekick in his story, not the princess. The sidekick is someone who thrives if the hero thrives, right? The sidekick is going to flourish only if the hero succeeds at his task. The sidekick is going to use everything that they have to support whatever it is that is the plan of the hero. That's how the sidekick thinks. Can you see how that's a really important shift to get our head around what James is teaching? To think of ourselves not as the focus of this story, but as the supporting character to the real hero, Jesus. That's what James is encouraging here. Stop making it about ourselves. Stop making it about our judgments. Stop making it about our plans. Stop making it about our wealth and make it about the hero of this story. We are healthier in our spirituality when we think of ourselves as this lovable sidekick. That's how we leave behind the stuff, the judgment, the planning, the hoarding of wealth. We stop viewing ourselves as the point of the story. And we start realizing that we've been invited into the hero's story. James, he's trying to get us to get our head around that. As he has this whole letter, I think he's trying to get us to the point, honestly, of repentance because this tendency is in all of us. Like when we have judged people, which we all have, because we thought we were worthy to judge, we need to repent. We need to repent of taking Jesus' seat away from him and sitting in it. You know, when we have made our plans and just thought we could bring God along for the ride to our happily ever after, uh, we need to repent from that, that arrogance that treats him as something less than the single greatest activity we could ever engage in. You know, when we've hung on to our wealth, treated our finances as if they belong to us, we need to repent from that. That's self-indulgence, he says. And I think in all those things, we need to start learning to hold them a little bit loosely because they're not for us. We're the sidekick. We're the supporting role. They are for the hero of all heroes who has invited us into the story that he is writing. 
He's not invited us to be the co-hero. That's not our role. Maybe more like the faithful and lovable, hopefully lovable, sidekick. That's how we make this shift, I think. Um, we, we just stop making it about us. <laughs> we stop making it about what we think about these people. We start making it about how he has grace for these people. We start making, stop making it about what are my plans for the future. We start making it about what is his will, what is he doing on earth. And we stop making it about what do I want to do with my money. And we start making it about what is the kingdom needing now? How can we get, in that, uh, get involved in that? Stop thinking about the story as if it's about us and start knowing this story is about him and his kingdom. I don't know about you, but I read these words and in all three areas, I see, I need to repent from some of this stuff. I need to shift my thinking on all those things. I wonder if we could do that together this morning. Just repent a little bit, turn from those ways that we've made this story about us. Turn towards him and make him the hero of this story. And so God, we come to you today with humility. We're thankful just for the guidance of James and how he leads us again and again to this place of humility. Why is that so hard for us, Lord? We repent from our pride. And in so many ways, Lord, we have made your story about us We've held on to our judgments about others when you've wanted them to have grace and we repent of that. Lord, we've held on to our plans and our desires for our future when you've had an adventure in your kingdom and a will for us that was so much better and we repent. Lord, we've held on to our wealth in ways that, Lord, we don't even sometimes think of ourselves as wealthy. We've held on to it so tightly. Lord, we repent. We see what you've given us. And we see that it's not for us alone. And so in all those ways, God, I pray that we would be a people, we would be a church that makes you the hero of this story and that we embrace deeply our supporting role. In the name of the hero of all heroes, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.